the first refugee ever elected to Congress. democracy should work for everyone everywhere not just in certain places and not just on a certain day power sees nothing without a demand it never has and it never will we still have to be willing to show up every single day and demand our seat at the table so proud of you guys Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 249 of Opening Arguments. I'm Thomas Smith. That over there is Andrew Torres. How are you doing, Mr. Torres? I am fantastic, although the uh, the numerologist in me is really, really excited about episode 250, as you can uh-huh. as you can imagine. But uh, yeah. but I'm also excited about this episode. This is a good one, I promise. Yeah, I, this one seems to be some sort of prank. Um, you got me. You got me, Andrew. This, the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the spreadsheet has more things than we could possibly cover in three episodes, so I don't know... <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew's like, oh, we'll fly through him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's how he, that's because that's how you work, Andrew. Yes. That's definitely, yeah. Uh, uh, superficial, uh, shallow, Mr. quick on each segment. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Lightning round of 15 minutes each on a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better get it started, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. All right. We'll stop screwing around. We got a lot to talk about. The shutdown has ended? Question mark? <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, well, we got to talk about that. And more on the Hilton case. Um, very interesting there. Might got a little bit of, I don't know. I don't know if pushback's the right word, but got some people asking some follow-ups there. And a case that I think we're a little maybe nervous about <laughs> related to abortion rights. So that's fun. That's always a good time. And then finally, we've got to take a brief trip to Yodel Mountain. And I say brief, it Probably won't be, but I'm it's wishful thinking. <laughs> uh, I look forward to the day when we don't have to visit Yodel Mountain anymore. But um, yeah, <laughs> oh, that that I think we'll still have to go just for fun. You know, yeah. Like well, a we we have thing. the vacation yeah. condo at the uh, yeah. Of, we have a timeshare there. We can't get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> Did I tell you? Uh, we I know we got to get to it, but uh, in Hawaii when we went on vacation, there's the people with a little timeshare. Hut thing that's like how to get rid of your timeshare. Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. I like if you listen to right wing radio for any period of time, in addition to like, you know, cash for gold and like, you know, baker bucket type survivalist, you know, pure scam kind of things, you will hear sometimes in back-to-back segments, commercials for timeshares, and then also commercials for, hey, do you have a timeshare that you'd like to sell us? timeshare? <laughs> <laughs> Were you dumb enough to go for a time? No. Uh, I, know, but right. I, I know some people are happy with their timeshares. All right, here yeah. we go. Let's get to it. The shutdown is over. What do you want to, What do you have to say for yourself, Andrew? I guess you were right. 
Yeah, well, I think we were both right, right? I said I thought that uh, things were auguring in a good direction for the shutdown to end. And And uh, I said that Trump is like a mouse going through a maze. And I was right. (laughs) But it turned out the mouse maybe got out of it, the maze. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> look, even a blind mouse escapes the yeah. maze occasionally. <laughs> no, but you were right. I want to link this in the show notes. Um, there is a really, really good Greg Sargent op-ed that basically says uh, it's Ann Coulter's fault that we had the shutdown. And um, and yeah. you, you pegged that word for word, you know, person for person down to the identity of the villain. So uh, I thought that was pretty great. I, I also want to flag because the uh, the continuing resolution extended for 21 days, which means it ends on February 15th. We'll be covering as we get closer to February 15th. There seems to be bipartisan support for ending these kinds of shutdowns. Um, so I, I think that that will be a really interesting legislative development between uh, now and then. Obviously, a lot of these bills right now are in sort of the exploratory stage and they're going to have to get hammered out. Right. So, for example, one is proposed by uh, Rob Portman, who is a uh, Republican from Ohio, but not, you know, a a. a, a, a sometimes uh, thoughtful uh, guy and not part of the Trump, you know, screeching howler monkey contingent. Um, His bill is fatally flawed. See if you can spot the flaw in it. Um, (laughs) It is called the uh, End Government Shutdowns Act. And what it would do is there would be automatic continuing resolutions to fund the government at current levels if no continuing resolution is passed. But after 120 days, the funding level would be cut by 1% and then would continue to be cut by uh, 1% every 90 days after that, that you don't reach a budget. So yeah, it's like if we disagree and can't agree on something, then the conservative path Yeah. Then we get to cut a bunch of stuff eventually. Yeah. And 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 now Portman will argue we're going to include the Department of Defense in that. So everybody will share in the pain. That's exactly the mindset of the fiscal cliff that Republicans were perfectly happy to let us go over during the Obama administration. They are willing to trade cuts in defense for cuts in everything else. And Democrats, having been burned once before, should not Uh, allow themselves to be burned again. But look, like I I truly believe that this is just the way a Republican thinks about sanctioning things. Right. Like I, I, I don't think that, you know, this was sort of a Trojan horse kind of thing. And and so I view that as a good sign that uh Members of both parties have said, we, we, we've got to fix this. We, we can't let this happen again. So we'll keep our eye on it. That's what's in the news on shutdowns. All right. Are you did you finish the shut? <laughs> I'm done. Well, I'm are done. you being true yeah, to your word? Oh, my gosh. That was pretty fast. I better talk about timeshares for a little longer. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. That's one thing down. There's still, uh, let's see, counting 37 more bullet points. So we'll see if we get through it. Have you ever tried a jury trial? I have not. Civil? No. Every lawyer is tempted. Criminal? No. Bench? No. Not only to eat forbidden fruit, but to become the snake. State or federal court? I have not. Why am I persecuted? Okay, uh, Hilton follow-up questions. Like eight different people on Twitter ask, uh, can the money go to charity or something? And I guess they're, they're probably talking about like when there's big punitive damages, you know, rather than have it all go to, I don't, 
see, I don't even understand where the issue is with this problem. Like, why are people so much more concerned with the fact that somebody who has suffered an injustice is maybe going to get to like more money than cosmically they deserve versus the fact that you're just trying to punish a corporation. I mean, whatever. What's your take on this? Yeah. So a, a lot of people, as you allude to, asked about the additional $21 million that, you know, we were describing is going to be reduced down to $300,000 by statute and said, oh, well, you know, that money, where's that money going to go? And the answer is that money's not going anywhere, right? Like, so (laughs) apparently we weren't clear enough in the episode. It is eliminated to zero by statute. Right. So it it's not that it doesn't go to the plaintiff. It oh, is no longer. Oh, I misunderstood. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that. Yeah, that's how I took it when you said it. Yeah, obviously I did a bad job of, of communicating that. No, huh. that's what these laws do. Right. And that's why it makes me so angry when mainstream and left-leaning news sources play into the right-wing narrative. You are 100% correct. I'm going to I'm going to talk about that in in a second that the right-wing narrative is, "Oh, see, look at this person, they got a windfall, blah blah blah," and they gin up, you know, kind of mainstream anger about that and the impact is not that the money is taxed at a high bracket. You could do that. Not that the money is set aside and given to charities and you could do that. You could do that by having a state pass punitive damage uh, provisions that say, you know, 90 percent of that goes to fund um you know, things within the judicial process, right? Public defenders offices, courthouses, mm. right? There are there's literally no idea. limit to what you could do by law. But instead, what right wing groups do is they pass these absolute hard caps. And what happens is the court scratches out the jury's verdict, right? In this case, twenty one million dollars for punitive damage and replaces it with the number three hundred thousand. So it is a gargantuan windfall for the corporate defendant in these cases. So I, I, I thought it was really, really important to, to clarify on that score. So, yeah, apparently I didn't do a great job on communicating. No, that money is gone. And 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 I think your impulse is correct to go back to our uh, favorite recurring subject, baseball law. Right. Like <laughs> I have never understood in baseball and in other sports. Right. How the average fan gets angry at the ball player for getting you know, multi-million dollar contracts. And and you want to point out, you were citing, when you, when, you know, when you say, like, oh, that guy, how did that guy get $10 million? Like, I would play for half that. That's You were, you were siding <laughs> with the billionaire team owners yeah. <laughs> who literally do nothing, right? But, yeah. but look, like, I have this fight when I talk sports all the time. Uh, so, <laughs> so apparently that impulse of, I'm mad that somebody else got something that I thought they didn't deserve, even if taking that away means the bad actor here. Because remember, to to have punitive damages awarded against you requires a finding of intentional malice, right? It requires, you don't just slap down punitive damages because you lose. They are rare. They are exceptional. They indicate wantonness, willfulness, maliciousness. Bad, bad stuff. And I will continue to fight against media reports that that mischaracterize punitive damages. So that's uh, that was question one. I I think we got another one. <laughs> Longtime patron, friend of the show, Eli Bosnick. He asks, 
If I sincerely believed that coming to work on the day of the full moon would turn me into a werewolf, would expressing this to my supervisor be considered statutorily protected, and would the consequential firing be considered retaliatory? Uh, why don't you go ahead and untangle that one for us, Andrew? <laughs> so, Eli, simple answer to your question is yes, and you should be happy that it, it would be. Right. Right. So, um, how do we unpack this? We look to Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's what governs all of this, 42 U.S.C. Section 2000E. And that law says that it's unlawful for an employer, put a pin in that, to fail, refuse to hire, or otherwise discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, condition, or privileges of employment, right, because of an individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. We've talked about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 a lot on this show. It is one of the foundational bedrock pieces of anti-discrimination legislation. And uh, while I think those categories should be expanded, we talked about that at great length, um, I, I, think that that, I think that those categories are well-founded, uh, even the religion category. So now let's let's drill down a little bit on the particular prohibition. First, you have to be an employer. And employer in the statute is defined as 15 plus employees, right? So mm. Eli, you can rest assured that Puzzle in a Thunderstorm LLC, which does not have 15 or more employees, is exempt from the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You don't count as an employer. Then assume you do. Hold that, on. Right? Does that mean you're you, you might not want to give the message to Eli that he can actually be as violate the Civil Rights Act all he wants because they don't have. <laughs> well, is that is that how the, it works? Don't they don't just do don't, like as don't take legal advice wanted? from this podcast. <laughs> um, there. Look, there are other actions which God knows Eli would do that would run afoul <laughs> of other laws. Uh, but. Under Title VII, the individual plaintiff only gets to make a claim against an employer that has huh. 15 or more employees. So all of these things about accommodations, for example, that, that we talked about in the lawsuit we're going to talk about in this segment, they apply to, and again, I wouldn't say 15 employees makes you a big employer, but I would say it makes you not a small business, right? It makes you yeah. not a mom-and-pop outfit. It is not hard if you're me or you or puzzle in a thunderstorm llc or you know lots of my clients to 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 be under 15 employees and and anybody as somebody who frequently consults with businesses that are about to make that jump right any business consultant worth their salt will tell you as you're about to hire your 15th employee okay look like now you're a big you are you're a larger business, it's time to put processes and procedures in place. So keep that in mind for background when we're talking about accommodation. We're not talking about, you know, a mom and pop shop with 14 or fewer employees. Second, the term religion is defined expansively in the statute. It includes, quote, all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief, end of quote. So, yeah, uh, werewolfism absolutely would be covered. And this is a good thing, too, because the more narrowly you define religion, the easier it is. Uh, it is to for Scalia exclude. to just think that it means Christians. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. 
So you want this to be defined expansively. And in fact, there have been, we don't have time to get into them, but there have been Title VII cases on the basis of secular humanists, on the basis of ethical culture, uh, on the basis of non-theistic ethical beliefs. So it's good that the religion but clause... Question, I'm sure you're getting to this, but this doesn't mean that you have to give werewolves the day off on the full moon, right? Isn't it just that if you fire them retali- in retaliation for discussing it, then it, you've run afoul of this? So here's here's what it means, right? And and I was going to get to that distinction. Good, good to point out. This is from the Hilton case itself. Uh, but what the law requires you to do as an employer is you you are required to accommodate the religious beliefs of your employees if and only if doing so would cause no more than a minimal burden on the operations of your business right so in other words um, if it is essentially no cost to you to say okay uh, we got Sally over here. Sally's got to leave at 4 p.m. on Fridays in the fall and winter because uh, she's an Orthodox Jew and she needs to get home before the Sabbath, right, on Friday. And if you can then reschedule Sally's hour uh, from that time on Friday to somewhere else during the week, then that's considered a reasonable accommodation. And the employer can't just say, "Nah, you know what? I kind of want you here from four to five o'clock on a Friday, even if the sun goes down. And, you know, so be it with your with your religious beliefs. They have to accommodate you, uh, but they only have to accommodate you if that accommodation imposes a minimal or zero burden on the business. So what does that mean in practical terms? Right. There are a lot of different case law uh, out out here out there. But um, but generally it means. You got to be flexible about scheduling. You have to permit voluntary uh, shift substitutions if there are folks who do a similar job, right? And you have to be willing to uh, modify your workplace policies if doing so, again, does not disrupt the business, right? So, classic example. There are a lot of cases on this, and, and I actually wrote about this uh, back when I worked for the man uh, seven years ago. A lot of work environments will say you can't wear a hat, right, because they don't want you coming in in your stupid MAGA hat or, uh, you know, I don't know, one of the fedoras that was popular for a while. uh, You know, they just say don't come in and wear a hat. And then a religious person will say, you know, I believe that I should be uh, allowed to wear religious headgear, right, a a hijab or uh, a yarmulke, right? And... Typically, unless there's a really, really good reason for the no hat policy, then the employer will be like, yeah, all right, right, wear your hijab, uh, wear your yarmulke. Um, this, where this came into play, and there was actually a private settlement, I, I don't have time to go into it, but, but involved Disneyland, right? Huh. Uh, yeah, and you can see how all of those factors would, would, would play in, um, and that you know, that makes it a tougher case, right? Uh, when you're talking about, you know, do you have to put the the, uh, the hijab over the Mickey head? Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. no, you don't have to put the hijab over the Mickey head, right? Um, that's, but, but again, think about like how minimal a level of accommodation this is, right? But you can't say, and this was alleged in the initial complaint, that, 
no, we don't want you. If you're working in Frontierland and you're the cashier at the diner in Frontierland, we don't want you to look like you would stand out in the American West, so no hijab. And rightfully so, uh, that plaintiff was like, that seems a little discriminatory to me. And uh, it seemed a little discriminatory to me, too. So um, so that's what it means to to have a reasonable accommodation. And again, right, the the way to make the werewolfism analogous to Hilton would be you come in, you say, I'm a werewolf. Uh, your employer says, OK, <laughs> hi, well, hi. let's shake paws. I'm a werewolf. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> OK, well, you know what that means is I don't have to schedule you on Sundays once a month. Um, that probably is a reasonable request for accommodation, right? There are ways in which that could be unreasonable, but yeah, I was going to say. I mean, so if it's as simple as "No, sorry, we don't have anyone else who can do this," then it's it's like you have to come to your shift, right? It's like if it if it would impose a cost that's bigger than minimal, then the employer has the right to be like, "Sorry, we can't accommodate this." That is exactly right, and so so. Two things with respect to that. First, more than minimal expense, right, includes if it requires you to pay frequent overtime, right? Yeah. How would how might that happen, right? You know, the full moon comes on a Saturday, so those hours get reassigned to a Sunday, and now you're paying time and a half, right? Right. It's not hard. And the the case law has said if that's the only way to accommodate, and it would involve you having to pay overtime every month, then no, uh, you don't have to accommodate, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't have to accommodate if it would compromise workplace safety, if it would decrease workplace efficiency. That's a pretty broad category. Yeah, no if kidding. it would infringe on the rights of other employees, if it would require other employees to do more than their share of potentially hazardous or burdensome wow. work. So basically, right. Hilton was that that middle manager was monumentally stupid. Like any, <laughs> yes, it's virtually impossible to not have a reasonable excuse to right. not allow this. Basically, right? Yeah. Okay. And and what he did was, uh, right, came in. The company had obviously been just fine with it for six plus years, and then he was like, "No, no, you know, you specifically have yeah, to be." Yeah, and here. she had found someone to cover her shift. Right. And this is why a f- couple things, real quick. I don't understand some of the sentiment behind this. Do people think that like dishwashers have it too good in our society or something? Yeah. Like what like there's too <laughs> there's too little control that employers have over employees these days. Like what is <laughs> I I could understand that if this was the Ben Shapiro show or something, but like I I I, I don't have any like I think that, you know, Workers get trampled on all the time. I think the balance of power is far, far and away more over to the side of the the employers these days. They have the money, they have the power, they have the everything. And uh, if there's a law that says, look, if someone's trying to make a reasonable accommodation for something and you're able to do it at little to no cost, then you have to do it. I, that to me, that seems fine. I don't have yep. a problem with that. I, I agree. I want to I want to end with one last thing, which is you don't have to, as the employer, grant the employee the accommodation that they're requesting. You just have to give a reasonable accommodation that respects their religious belief. So in other words, mm. the fact that they've come to you with something doesn't become an all or nothing thing. So you right? could give them two hours off that day instead of the whole day, maybe? 
Right. It, it, again, depending on whatever is necessary to respect the beliefs. But yes, right. Like a, the classic example of that would be, again, let's go back to Orthodox Jew says, I want off on Friday. And you say, well, off? Are, are, you know, it, it doesn't doesn't the Sabbath start at sundown? And they go, yeah, well, it does. And then they go, OK, well, you can leave early in enough time to be home yeah. For the Sabbath, right? So in other words, rejecting the employee's request doesn't automatically trigger the review. What triggers the review is the reasonableness of the accommodation that is made, if any. So, yeah, I I just think that 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 continues to uh, back up the point that you've just made, which is all of the power here is really in the hands of the employer and— and I think and what, so. what pissed me off the most about the coverage was the wording, oh, they skipped work to go to church. Yeah. If you arrange for someone to cover your shift, and so you've essentially, you know, traded days off or whatever, you're not skipping work. It's And how frustrating would it be like you're, like you're Bob Cratchit and, and Ebenezer Scrooge, like, you skipped work on Christmas. Like, no, we agreed to this. What are you talking about? I have somebody to cover. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird that people would cover it like that. And it uh, it seems pretty unfair to me. Yep, I agree. So right. there we go. Well, there you go. And uh, thanks for the question, Eli. But uh, I I still think you're wrong. <laughs> and it's not a. I think the what what you know some of the atheist and skeptic listeners might be annoyed at with this whole thing is like, wait, isn't this like validating bogus religion? You know, if you think you're a werewolf, you know, isn't that kind of isn't this law in a way? maybe validating religion in a way it shouldn't. And like, I don't really think you need to think of it like that. It's it's really just a law of if you make an arrangement, a reasonable arrangement, a reasonable accommodation that the employer is, is required to do it if there's like no cost to them, you know, and, and it doesn't, I don't think it has to be in the frame of like, that means the law thinks you're really a werewolf, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and look, all it requires recognition of is the idea that religion is really, really important to a lot of people. And that's a right. fact, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really, really important to a lot of atheists, too, right? Like, I mean, this is this is not an in a, some people it is right. Like some people have said, uh, right. I think it was PZ Myers who said, I'd like to see religion occupy the same space as knitting. Right. You know, like yeah. I, I get that. Right. And and if your view is I don't think religion is important, and I don't think it should be important to anybody. Express that belief, but you have Congrats. to recognize. I don't think comic book movies should be important to anybody. Right. You don't see. <laughs> yeah, if you I start mean, going after Transformers, it, I... <laughs> though, I, I, we will, we will have this will be the last yeah, episode yeah. ever of opening. Andrew arguments. wants uh, to reschedule the recording because of the new Transformers BS that's coming out, and then I, I say no, and then I'll get slapped with a civil oh. rights violation. <laughs> All right. Well, I, uh, I think I know our next, uh, our next <laughs> deep dive into. Yeah. <laughs> Accommodation of Transformersism. So, anyway. uh, good times. All right, we got to move on. Thanks for the questions. Okay, I'm terrified to start this segment, but what's happening? Is this going to be? Is this going to be bad news? This is going to be like depression time. What's yeah. what's going on? This is almost certainly going to be bad news. It is going to be. Bad news occurring faster than I expected, and the way in which you will be able to tell as an opening arguments listener if this is as bad as we think it is has to do with what the Supreme Court rules 
as you are listening to this show on Friday, February the 1st, <laughs> it has to do with a an emergency petition to stay the effect of a Fifth Circuit Court's opinion. That opinion is in the case of June Medical Services versus G, G-E-E. And if the Supreme Court does not stay the effect of the Fifth Circuit's decision, which, again, they have to do so by the time you are listening to this, then that will be the indication that this Supreme Court in the near term, and by the near term, I mean fall, right? I mean, in the year 2019, will roll back Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey to the point of meaninglessness, right? And that, you you may recall, that was one of my predictors about what what Kavanaugh to the court meant. I don't think that this court will explicitly overrule either Roe or Casey. But I think that what they will do is take the structure of Casey and stretch it in ways that effectively gut all of Roe. So let's break that down a little bit, right? Um, <sighs> all right. <laughs> it's Here we this go. look, this is bad. I want us to be out in front on this and I want our listeners it's, to know what happens because you're going to see news reports. And it's and almost let's go like the there was a, a lot at stake in the twenty sixteen election and your petty little problems <sighs> with whether or not one candidate gave a speech to somebody and made some money on it was perhaps not worth giving up uh women's rights over, maybe? Yeah. Is that what for decades? And, could that and, be what you're saying? Sorry, uh, this is possible. Really, this is difficult yeah. to talk about. Like it, it makes yeah. me really livid. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, okay. Um, and 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 let me say that right. This is a perfect example of another holding action, right? Um, and I, I I sincerely hope that next week we will discover that the Supreme Court has in fact stayed the enforcement of the judgment in in June Medical Services, and that will not be a great sign. Right. It, 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 there's no great outcome here on the horizon. <laughs> there is only catastrophe and not yet catastrophe. Okay. So well, I, I vote for the not yet catastrophe. I, me too. Nice. Me too. And we will be okay. excited about that. But you will see, as as we'll get through in in the breakdown, there will be media sources that are eager, that are dying to write the swing justice John Roberts votes with the liberals. You know, we've already seen those articles get out there already, and they will write them about this case tomorrow if the Supreme Court uh, stays the effect of the judgment. And it will mean no such thing. It will not mean that. John Roberts is not vested in gutting Roe v. Wade, Mm. it will only mean that they will have postponed that for a couple of months. Um, So what's going on? First background, Um, you can turn to episodes 27 and 28, uh, where we broke down the shift in the law from Roe v. Wade to Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The important takeaway from those two episodes, they're good episodes. You should go back and listen if you haven't. But um, uh, the important takeaway was that uh, Roe v. Wade had a trimester approach to the uh, a woman's right to an abortion. And I believe that that was by far the more sensible and legally defensible approach. The trimester yeah. approach uh, balanced out the state's interest in protecting potential life against the liberty interests of the mother and said, uh, look, the way this is going to break down is the state can't restrict in the first trimester, in the first three months. Uh, the state can restrict but not ban in the second, and then they can ban outright in the third. And that 
sort of shows that over the the length of the pregnancy, the state's liberty interest, the state's uh, uh, just a quick refresher. Yeah, yeah. Did that still mean even if it was a life threatening thing, they could ban it? In the third yeah. trimester. Well, again, uh, you would. Th- there were no bills that uh, would have banned abortion, even at a risk of the okay. life to the mother. Just, just that checking. that brings in. No, it's a that's a great question, right? That brings in yet another interest, right? Which would then counterbalance the scale. Oh, right? I see. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. we're just talking about in general balancing out the liberty interest of the woman. Uh, in having an abortion for whatever reason, right, Uh, versus the state's interest in protecting potential life. Oh, once you bring another life in there, in the calculus... That changes the calculus. Yeah, absolutely. So that made total sense, uh, and that was... That system was completely eviscerated in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And what the Supreme Court replaced the trimester test with was what's called an undue burden test. And it just says that in order to respect a woman's right to an abortion, a state may not, quote, place an undue burden, end quote, on a woman's right to obtain an abortion. What that means is, and and what immediately happened, was that states could now restrict abortions even in the first trimester. And the game for pro-life advocates for the past 30 years since Casey has been to enact more and more of these restrictions that apply throughout the period of pregnancy, right? And so we've talked about mandatory ultrasound bills and all, all sorts of things, and then litigate that out in the courts and see if the courts are going to say, does this constitute an undue burden or not? And you know that there's a thumb on the scale because the states in which you are most likely to pass the more restrictive abortion laws are, by and large, there are some exceptions, correlate pretty well with states that have conservative federal judiciaries that are more likely to take this sort of vague undue burden test and be like, no, that's fine. That's not an undue burden. So you have to sit there and let them read scripture at you for 11 weeks. Yeah. So there's only one clinic within 400 million miles because you've made it impossible for these clinics to operate. That's not undue. And and that is foreshadowing of of the specific case uh, from 2016 that is at at jeopardy here now in 2018. So uh, in addition to restrictions on the woman's right itself, there have also been model pieces of model legislation that have been proposed that are designed to place restriction on abortion doctors and abortion providers, especially independent clinics and Planned Parenthood. And one of those pieces of of legislation was litigated in 2016 in a case called Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. Uh, it involved a Texas law and was thus uh, decided first by the uh, district court, which said this law obviously places an undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion. That was appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which went the other way. And that was appealed to the Supreme Court, uh, which overturned the Fifth Circuit, validated the district court's opinion and said that the following law constitutes an undue burden under the Uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey standard. And there were two provisions of the Texas law, but they were both analyzed separately. And there's only one that's relevant here. Um, It was 
an admitting privileges requirement law, right? And it says uh, a physician performing or inducing an abortion must, on the date of service, have active admitting privileges at a hospital located not further than 30 miles from the abortion facility. Okay, And as you alluded to, the express stated purpose of this law is not to make abortions more safe for women, right? Is not because any appreciable percentage of abortions require women to be rushed to hospitals. It is to try and make clinics go out of business. And that's what the Supreme Court said, right? The Supreme Court said the record in this case contains sufficient evidence that the admitting privileges requirement led to the closure of half of Texas's clinics or thereabouts. Those closures meant fewer doctors, longer waiting times, increased crowding. Record evidence supports the finding that after the admitting privileges provision went into effect, the number of women of reproductive age living in a county more than 150 miles from a provider increased from 86,000 to 400,000, right? So basically five times as many. And the number of women living in a county more than 200 miles from a provider went from 10,000 to 290,000, right? So makes it very, very difficult for a woman to get an abortion. And the Supreme Court said that constitutes an undue burden. So, yay, right? Good, wow. good, good decision. Uh, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt 2016. That was a 5-3 decision. So 5-3, because uh, the Republicans were in the process of stealing Merrick Garland's seat, so the that seat on yeah. the court was empty and now has gone to Neil Gorsuch. And the fifth vote was, of course, Anthony Kennedy, yeah. uh, and his seat has now gone to Brett Kavanaugh. So um, enter in uh, the the game plan. And again, we, we, we call this out, but it's worth pointing out. Uh, every time we get the chance, what Republicans are going to do to take advantage of the fact that they have weaponized the Supreme Court into a transformative instrument of right wing activism is propose bills that are blatantly unconstitutional and keep firing them on up the you know, flagpole and see if they can get uh, Gorsuch Kavanaugh to uh, to salute. Um, that's what happened here. So Louisiana a state that you may recognize as being next door to Texas and also within the jurisdiction of the Fifth Circuit. Is that Circuit a lot of awful movie, movies uh, reference? <laughs> yes. Um, passed the exact same law as in Texas. Okay. And 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 I'm, I'm going to read it, right? Um, it is almost word for word. It is Louisiana Act 620, codified at um, a provision of the Louisiana statutes, right? And it requires a physician performing or inducing an abortion to have active admitting privileges at a hospital that is located not further than 30 miles from the location at which the abortion is performed or induced and that provides obstetrical or gynecological health care services. Right. So the only way in which this differs from the Texas law is by making the requirement more onerous. Right. It's the same. Doctors have to be licensed. They've got to have an ad, admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. Uh, and also, it can't just be any hospital. It has to be a hospital that has uh, obstetrical gynecological health care services. 
the effect of this law as found by the district court, and again, we're talking about a district court in Louisiana, right, would be to close down all but one abortion clinics in the state of Louisiana and to invalidate the credentials of all but one doctor in the state of Louisiana. Okay, that is a fact that was determined by the court uh, as it, as part of its fact finding, and um, when this case got so uh, the the uh, clinic uh, and reason and common sense prevailed at the district court level, the Fifth Circuit decided to take another whack at it. You may recall the Fifth Circuit was the circuit that got overruled in the whole woman's health case, and um, they essentially said, yeah, we we get that uh, we just got smacked down two years ago, uh, but um, but we're going to say the exact same thing in this case, uh, and we're going to overrule the district court, and we're going to say, this is, this is not an undue burden. Um, I, I'm going to link the opinion because this opinion is, A, indefensibly preposterous, and B, it is, if you have your Uncle Frank who talks about judicial activism, uh, show him this decision in June Medical Services. Um, it, it, you cannot describe this as anything but naked judicial activism. And by that, I mean what the Fifth Circuit did was overrule the district court's findings of fact. Now, Long-standing OA listeners and you, Thomas, will recognize the standard for disregarding the facts that are determined at the district court level below is uh, the, the clearly erroneous standard, right? It, it, it doesn't happen, right? It is, such, yeah. it is at such a level that, right, I mean, we've talked about how you have to characterize an argument as a legal argument, right? Because trial courts determine the facts. They're the ones who hear the witnesses. They're the ones who dig into the documents. Appellate courts get your legal briefs, and you have a half-hour oral argument before them, right? You don't have an eight-week trial before them. It, it is, it, it, if, there's, if there's one thing that I hope people have learned from, you know, me talking about my appellate practice it's you're stuck with the facts that that the district court uh decides and then you can win on the law uh but um but you can't you can't change the facts unless you're pro-life in louisiana and you get before a politically conservative circuit and you get the right panel um i am not exaggerating here here are some of the facts that the Fifth Circuit just decided that, and they explicitly say, uh, we think the district court got it wrong on the question of whether the uh, underlying bill served a credentialing function, on how much weight should be accorded the state's expert, on whether and how hospitals deny admitting privileges to doctors. Um, in And I'm going to read this one because this is egregious. Um, The district court found that all of the physicians attempted in good faith to comply with the act by making numerous inquiries and filling out various applications. The Fifth Circuit found bad faith on the part of all but one of the doctors. Now, how in the hell can a district can 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 an appellate court determine whether somebody acted in bad faith uh, when the the finder of fact has has said that they do not? I mean, that is. Wow. 
It is preposterous. It is naked political. I don't, I don't even activism. understand how this is possible because the Supreme Court case that's three years old goes the other way. So how do they take the exact so same case? What they say is, oh yeah, yeah, no that that. Uh, it, that that Supreme Court case is a fact-specific inquiry, and yes, even though all the facts are the same, uh, we don't think the facts are the same because we think the district court got it wrong. I am wow. not making it up. So it's just like that, a, uh, they're just lobbing a pitch down the middle for in case the Supreme Court wants to, you know, get rid of abortion rights in the country. That is. 100% what they're doing, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the Fifth Circuit's word for it. Let me read from the introduction, right? This is from page 792 of the opinion, and here's what the Fifth Circuit says, right? So after uh, pointing out that the inquiry is fact-specific, it says, in addition to the concern for the maternal health expressed at the hearing, Louisiana has an underlying interest in protecting unborn life. The state has codified its intent to, quote, regulate abortion to the extent permission, end quote. Its longstanding policy is that, quote, the unborn child is a human being from the time of conception and is therefore a legal person entitled to the right to life, end of quote. And Louisiana enacted a trigger law such that, if those decisions of the United States Supreme Court legalizing abortion are ever reversed or modified or the United States Constitution is amended to allow protection of the unborn, then the former policy of the state to prohibit abortions shall be enforced. End of quote. Um, that is the Fifth Circuit admitting that this law is nothing but an effort to deny women the legal right to, to, to get an abortion. Um, it. It gets worse. I mean, like, I, I, I know it seems like it, it would be hard um, for, for it to get worse. It gets worse. The Because of the test that the Fifth Circuit applies in this case, they conclude that this statute has minimal to no benefit on women's health. They say, and again, this is page 807 of the decision, pull it up. Turn to it. This is not just crazy liberal Andrew making this up. Quote, this is the majority opinion in the Fifth Circuit upholding the law. Still, the benefits conferred by Act 620 are not huge. Though we credit Louisiana's more robust record on the benefits side of the ledger, the district court did not clearly err in finding that Act 620 provides minimal benefits given the current standard of care in highly specialized hospital settings. End of quote. So, Th that is telling you outright this bill does very little, uh, even under the best case scenario, to improve medical conditions. It's not intended to protect women. It has minimal benefits. They're not huge. Um, on the other side of the ledger, um, enforcement of this uh, will close every clinic in the state but one and will deprive every doctor in the state but one uh, of the uh, license to uh, to be able to perform abortions in the state. So the 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 plaintiffs in this case immediately petitioned for a rehearing on Bonk, right? Because this is just a, a panel decision of the Fifth Circuit. You would think when the Fifth Circuit is going to overturn the Supreme Court of the United States um, that you might want the whole the whole circuit to hear it and be able to weigh in. Uh, the whole circuit denied uh, that on a 9-6 uh, ruling. They denied hearing on Bonk. Uh, the six 
uh, judges who voted for it wrote a very, very strenuous dissent that I will uh, link in the show notes if if possible. Um, this is this was denied a week ago, week and a half ago, uh, January 18th. So I have not yet found a public version uh, of the denial. The plaintiffs then immediately petitioned the Supreme Court for a stay of the effect of the Fifth Circuit's opinion. Um, this should be a no-brainer, right? And, and, and here's where it comes down. It is obvious, right? The way in which you stay a court's judgment pending appeal are the same balance of factors that we talk about in all kinds of injunctive relief. Right. And the question here is where where are the balance of the harms? Right. And the petition lays this out really, really clearly. It will radically change the face of uh, the right to an abortion in the state of Louisiana if the judgment is put into effect. It will drive clinics out of operation. It will drive doctors out of the profession. That is irreparable harm. And on the other side of the ledger, everybody involved in this says putting this law into effect has minimal benefits, doesn't do a whole hell of a lot. So this should be a no-brainer for the Supreme Court to stay uh, the the effect of this judgment. Um, the Supreme Court has set a deadline of today, uh, sadly, an hour from now. <laughs> so so we, we won't get a chance to read it uh, for the state to file a reply to this brief. And uh, and as I've said, must rule by tomorrow, because otherwise the judgment will go into effect. And um, so we will know as you are listening to this, there will be headlines, there will be news stories. And here's how to understand that. If the Supreme Court does not d- denies the motion for stay, allows the Fifth Circuit judgment to go into effect pending appeal to the Supreme Court, it will be a sign that this Supreme Court intends to overrule Roe v. Wade, in effect, as quickly as possible. It will be as bad as you can possibly imagine. Um, there's no, there's no, because this, the facts on this are crappy. This yeah. is a terrible vehicle, right? So the flip side, if they grant the stay, that does not mean that they will not work to immediately undercut. Uh, a woman's right to an abortion, um, I believe that they will. Uh, remember that uh, one of the three dissenters in Whole Woman's Health was Justice Roberts, right? So uh, that's who you're counting on to be the swing vote here, and he is staunchly anti-abortion and has been staunchly anti-abortion since getting on the Supreme Court. Um, granting the stay does not mean that it won't be bad. It just means that it will not be, you know, bad yet. The end of infinity <laughs> yeah. war, bad, right? Exactly. Um, so well, it could that's still be. It's for. just, yeah, okay. Uh, all right. Sorry, I'd say something, but I'm just blinded with rage. I can't petrified with rage. I can't. I don't know what to say. That's really frustrating. Um, well, everyone listening might already know what happened before we do right now because <laughs> of the timelines. Uh, but thanks for telling us what to look for. Now, are you worried about any, you know, like, do you anticipate the media covering this badly? Like, what what nonsense should we look out for? You know, are, are they 
going to do one of those like, oh, Gorsuch is a liberal kind of coverages yeah. with this? Yes, if, if it, that is exactly what will happen. And again, look, like I can't be too mad about it because it's the best possible outcome. If you are seeing, right, Roberts sides with liberal majority and you know, liberal minority to uh, block Fifth Circuit, you know, to overturn because it, it won't be overturning. But, you know, if if they say Robert sides with liberals on abortion, that that's the that's the misreporting that, that you will see. Right. They will they, they will be hungry for the story that says, you know, uh, this is this is where John Roberts is, you know, acting in a way that is contrary to expectations. And and look, that is what you should expect from any competent jurist, regardless of your yeah. political beliefs. Right. This should be a nine zero decision. It will not yeah. be right because we have four hardcore activists who do not care about the law. Because, on the hold on. Let me. Yeah. Just to clarify that this this ruling tomorrow is not necessarily even like a hypothetical Supreme Court of nine anti-abortion jurists should still stay this ruling because it's so nonsensical, right? And and right, not only is it nonsensical, but the balance of harms tips greatly by the court's own admission, tips greatly in favor of the stay, right? If the law goes into effect, it will do irreparably bad things to doctors and clinics in the state of Louisiana. On the other hand, if the law is blocked, then what what we'll lose out on is what even the courts upholding the law have said are minimal benefits, right? So that should be a no-brainer all the way down, even if you're not even if you're more skeptical on how bad the opinion is, right? Because all of those factors are a, a complex that goes. So in, it's right? it's like we're waiting to see tomorrow if the current Supreme Court is so dedicated to taking away abortion rights that they're going to completely flout any like just obvious um, way of, of ruling this obvious kind of jurisprudence kind of thing, or if they're just going to do it later when it's more appropriate, basically. That is exactly right. Okay. So it's, so there's no good outcome really. I mean, there's just maybe a Less Look, there's a good there's a good outcome in the in the interim for women and doctors in Louisiana. Yeah. Right? So let's not That's let's true. not fail to emphasize that. Uh, but directionally, right there, you know, but you're just still like, defining good as the not so great status quo continuing. Correct. It's not correct. Yeah, okay. And and I would say that this is analogous. The warning I'm giving out here is analogous to. The stories we did when the first Muslim ban was enjoined by a variety of courts, right? And the ACLU went on with a really ill-advised, you know, tweet and press release that they then later took down, thankfully, that said, you know, court blocks Trump's Muslim ban, declares unconstitutional. And we said, no such thing. You know, yeah. <laughs> they they did not. And bad is coming and bad came. Right. Yeah. And that's what I would say here, too. Right. So it, it will be the best possible outcome if uh, the Supreme Court issues a stay. Uh, but it absolutely does not indicate that uh, that that uh, bad things are not coming. Bad is still coming. Well, this is awful, um, but we've yep. we've got to move on, I guess. So that's what to look out for, everybody in the if uh, pieces of 
meteors start falling to the earth because they've decided that they hate abortion so much and they hate women's rights so much that they're going to make a nonsense decision, then we'll know we're really in the worst timeline. All right. Quick trip to Yodel Mountain. Yeah, let's uh, let's do an ad break right here, and then we'll uh, then we'll go visit Yodel Mountain. Hey, listeners, getting life insurance is one of the more intimidating parts of becoming a full fledged adult. There are so many options; it's hard to know where to start. But making sure your family is financially protected is too important to avoid. You know, when we had little baby Phoebe, uh, this is something I decided to do. It's time to become an adult and get life insurance and know that your family uh, will be protected if something were to happen to you and we'll, and we'll be okay. So Policy Genius has created a website that makes it easy for you to compare quotes, get advice, and get covered without extra fees or commission sales agents. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find the coverage you need at a price you can afford. And, you know, if you're somebody who's new to this, this is an excellent tool. Maybe you have no idea what it might cost to get a certain uh, policy for a certain number of years. You can go through and you can get a better idea by using Policy Genius to compare all these different quotes and uh, then finally make the decision uh, after being more informed about what the range of prices and plans are. From there, you can apply online and the advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape. They'll even negotiate the rate with the insurance company. It's all part of their best price guarantee. If you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, try starting your search at policygenius.com. In minutes, you can compare quotes and apply. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. That's Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. So you're not aware of any context during the course of the election. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia is a ruse? I know you have to get up and ask a question so important. Russia is a ruse. Well, I'm not a crook. Put on your running shoes. We just time for a sprint up a part of Yodel Mountain. Um, Let's talk about process crime. Yeah. this is the defense that Trump supporters are backtracking to, and it's nonsense. So I want to flag it because uh, it's usually you start to see the inner circle of Trump's lawyers float the trial balloons of what their argument is going to be. And in this case, it is my fallen idol, Alan Dershowitz, who has taken to Twitter to say, Quote, Mueller crimes fit into three categories, process crimes that occurred after he was appointed, financial crimes unrelated to Russia investigation and crimes by non-Americans. Um, I want to say two things in response to this. The first, uh, our buddy Seth Abramson has posted uh, another one of his f- 51 tweet long threads uh, <laughs> that shows that every portion of that sentence is false. Um, that in fact there are crimes uh, that are that uh, that that post date. I, I mean, you know, there are crimes that are not process crimes. There are crimes by America. I mean, like e- everything about that is just factually wrong. I'm going to link that. We don't have time to go through that. Um, Seth is a 100 percent right. 
in the entire thread up until the point where in tweet number 51, he says that the A plus is not a grade they award at Harvard Law School. Not true. It is. It was at the time that that he and I were both there. Um, But uh, but everything else he says is correct. Uh, You can go read that. Um, I want to talk about the preposterousness of this defense to begin with and how it applies, uh, how they're attempting to apply it as the noose is tightening. Um, A process crime is a crime against the judicial system itself, right? So uh, 18 U.S.C. 1001, right, providing false statements. That is uh, the—I think every single person in the Manafort investigation uh, has been charged with uh, with that <laughs> statute. No, I'm, I'm serious, right? Yeah. It, it, for those who cooperate, right— they just get false statements. They just get the 18 U.S.C. 1001. For those who were Paul Manafort, you get, you know, 37 counts in addition to that, right? Um, so those are process crimes, right? Giving false statements in an official proceeding, um, obstruction of justice, contempt of court, perjury, right? They're, they're considered process because it doesn't matter what the underlying thing is. It matters that you've done a bad thing in the context of going to court. And the easiest thing, I know we have journalists who listen to this show. Um, every, every time you hear a Trump supporter say process crimes, you should instantly ask the question, wasn't Bill Clinton impeached for a process crime? Because the answer <laughs> to that question is yes, right? Bill Clinton was impeached for uh, lying under oath. And the lie that he gave under oath was about having sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. And as I've long said, I think we Democrats did ourselves no favors uh, in that in 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 that uh, in, in the, the Bill Clinton impeachment by uh, sort of being overzealous. Um, you may be able to find Democrats who were who would say, well, you know, yeah, that was just a process crime. But but even Democrats at the time did not raise the the stupid argument of it's just a process crime, so it doesn't count. What yeah. they said was this was it's just kind of analogous to the way that the right has tried to misuse the perfectly valid phrase of perjury trap. Right? Um, they've said, look. Bill Clinton shouldn't have been in that proceeding. All of this stuff was caused by Ken Starr being totally out of control and everybody lies about sex. So it's not a big deal that he lied about sex in a proceeding he shouldn't have been in. As I've said, I don't think that was a very good argument at the time. uh, And and well, it it shouldn't have been made. Right. Yeah. Go go, go ahead. Well, that's a can of worms. I don't think we have time for it, but I I think. I don't think anybody, almost nobody was right, in my opinion, back in the in the 90s about this. I think there are better reasons that Clinton should have been impeached, but they weren't they weren't exactly this one. But it's another topic. Time time for another show. Yeah. Um, So, number one, the idea that process crimes are less serious or less significant than other crimes is not true. And historically, the only president to have been impeached in the last 150 years was impeached on the basis of a process crime, right? Um, the case against Richard Nixon was a case based on process crimes, right? So, so all, process you're, crimes you're saying all it technically things. means is he there wasn't like a victim, like he didn't mug somebody, you know, or something. It's just 
you violated a law where the only victim is the legal system? Is, is the legal the system. That's, that is okay. 100% correct. And the implication is that the underlying no activity <laughs> right, yeah. is, that, is that the substance may not be criminal. Right. And so let's let's draw that comparison. Right. The substance of Bill Clinton's lie under oath was not criminal. Right. Or, I, you know, depending on the New York adultery laws versus D.C. laws. But but uh, receiving oral sex from a, a, a young woman is typically not what we consider a criminal or impeachable offense. Right. And so the argument was uh and, and the argument sort of being made by implication here is that these are just process crimes. There's nothing substantively wrong. This is not the case with the process crimes that are being alleged uh, against, in particular, Roger Stone in the latest indictment. What Roger Stone is alleged to have done is to have threatened witnesses in the Mueller investigation and encouraged them to take the fifth and not cooperate. And that, uh, de- depending on, on how it's performed, uh, is in, in connection, substantively in connection with an underlying crime, which is to say the connections between the Trump uh, campaign and later the Trump administration and Moscow's efforts to subvert our democracy. Right. So it's not like, oh, well, you know, this is the we wouldn't have to do any of this without uh, the the underlying investigations are investigations that are uh, themselves criminal. And by the way, Stone's indictment includes uh, giving materially false testimony to the House Intelligence Committee. So you can't even say, right, that this is uh, the Mueller investigation run amok and, you know, Mueller, that liberal and his team of Democrats. And yes, that's <laughs> irony. But but look, that's how Larry Clayman describes them in Roger Corsi's you know, uh, lawsuit. Right. Even if you buy into that crazy worldview in which lifelong Republican Robert Mueller and his lifelong Republican prosecutors are all secret Democrats. Even if you believe that, you can't think Devin Nunez is a Democrat, right? Like the the, the House committee was the howler monkey sanitized uh, committee that was designed to say, uh, are you really, really sure that there was nothing between Russia and Trump? OK, good. We're That's fine. We're done. And so these process crimes are not uh, at the instigation of uh, solely at the instigation of Robert Mueller. Um, and uh, they are uh, serious in their underlying substantive crimes to which to which they speak. So the, the argument is nonsense. I, I wish I had time to go through. Uh, the Stone indictment. I will tell you, like the reporting on what's in the Stone indictment is is pretty good, and um, so you know I'm going to link a couple of the articles as well as the indictment itself in the show notes. Um, you should read it because it it provides the exception to something that I've long said on the show that I I didn't think was possible, right? Which is hmm. I, I've always said nobody is the villain in their own story. <laughs> Roger Stone is the villain in his own story, right? I don't know if you've seen this. I guess the one the exception to that would be if you have a Nixon tattoo on your back, you maybe could be the villain. It, in, it, in addition <laughs> to encouraging uh, his intermediary, 
um, and I, I'm going to tell you who the intermediary is in a minute because this is amazing. Um, uh, in, in addition to encouraging the intermediary uh, to be like Nixon, um, he he Stone says to this person who is identified as person two in the indictment uh, when when saying, you know, that he shouldn't testify before the, uh, the House committee. Uh, he says, I want you to do a Frank Pentangeli. Right. Yeah. Uh, who who you may recall as one of the bad guys from The Godfather. Right. Like that's Frankie Five Angels. Right. And 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 what Frankie Five Angels does is shows up at the, you know, in the 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 climactic scene in the in The Godfather Part Two. Right. He shows up at the hearing and says, I never knew no Godfather. Yeah. Oh, the FBI. <laughs> ah, yeah. Doesn't this contradict your sworn statement? He's like, yeah, you know, the FBI was squeezing me. So I told him what they wanted to hear. But uh, I told him a bunch of lies to to I, I, I mean, literally, like to say, I want you to be like the bad guy in The Godfather too. Yeah. Like, I, 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 wow, is uh, is astonishing. <laughs> um, something that hasn't gotten a, a, a widespread reporting. It's kind of weird. Um, person two is uh, Randy Credico. Um, he's a comedian. He's a far left Bernie Bro supporter. Um, he has run uh, for office in New York as a Democrat on several occasions. Um, and he's a big defender of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And he was the go between between Roger Stone and uh, and Julian Assange. Um, that was the person that Roger Stone, uh, when when uh, when Credico was about to, to testify uh, to the to the House committee, uh, said, uh, I, I will you know, I will murder you. I will go kill your dog. So uh, weird, weird connection. Again, kind of more uh, circumstantial evidence of sort of the way in which the Trump supporting extreme right, in in my view, played an awful lot of folks on the left for suckers. And, you know, we have blithely called that, you know, kind of horseshoe theory in the past. I'm not endorsing the academics of horseshoe theory, but I am saying that, you know, when you are so far left that you are assisting Roger Stone and when you're parroting, you know, memes from Fox News, then, you know, to, to me, that's my definition of horseshoe. But a whole bunch of stuff uh, uh, in addition to. Uh, the Stone indictment, we just found out. I mean, we found out literally as I started recording the show um, that uh, that uh, Concord uh, Management and Consulting uh, is being hit with a motion from the uh, Mueller team related to leaking confidential information. Uh, and we've also found out that the Stone case, I think this is really significant. I want to give 30 seconds on it today. During the middle of this recording, thank you, Ashley Smith, for sending this to me, the the government filed a consent motion to exclude the Stone prosecution from the Speedy Trial Act, which would otherwise force them to bring charges within 70 days. The reason for doing so is because both parties have agreed that this case is complex, and and I think that this paragraph is really, really interesting, right? So Stone is going to litigate this in the press. His lawyers have already been uh, really, really aggressive in challenging Mueller. 
Um, it, it, we will have to see if Judge Amy Berman Jackson, uh, same judge as the Manafort case, by the way, that <laughs> got assigned a, a, a stone. We, we're going to have to see whether she imposes a gag order like the one she imposed on Paul Manafort. But they've asked for discovery, and the government has said the discovery in this case is both voluminous and, and complex. The government intends to begin providing defense counsel with discovery as soon as a protective order has been entered, right, to prevent them from leaking it. And then they say, and this is unredacted, this is pretty interesting. It, meaning the discovery, is composed of multiple hard drives containing several terabytes of information consisting of, among other things, FBI case reports, search warrant applications and results, e.g. Apple iCloud accounts and email accounts, bank and financial records, and the contents of numerous physical devices, e.g. cellular phones, computers, and hard drives, the communications contained in the iCloud accounts, email accounts, and physical devices span several years. The government also intends to produce to the defense the contents of physical devices recently seized from his home apartment and office. They are currently undergoing a filter review uh, by a taint team for the, by the FBI for potentially privileged <laughs> communications. So um, that's big news. That is Mueller firing a shot saying, uh, yeah, the stuff we have on stone goes back multiple years. It's terabytes worth of stuff. This is not something that depends on Corsi flipping or any other person We've got this guy. So that just broke today. That's the significance of that pleading. Wish I could talk about more yodely stuff, but uh, but I think we're out of time. Yeah, we are over time, but that's okay. We needed the time for this really depressing episode. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, um, I think it's time to move on to our favorite, our co-favorite segment of the week. And that is thanking our top patrons, our Hall of Famers. It's the only way we can cheer ourselves up after depressing shows like this one. <laughs> what do you say? All right. Yeah, take it away, Andrew. And also, reminder, uh, patrons, you've got a lot to listen to. If you, uh, you know, if you need stuff to listen to, you've got the Q and A audio in that feed. You've got the lot awful movies that came out a couple days ago. Uh, it's good stuff. So, lots of goodies, lots of reasons to pledge. Go ahead, Andrew. All right. Thank you, too. We are going to build a Death Star and make Alderaan pay for it to empathy is not weakness. Oh, great message there. That's it. I'm switching to Duncan Coffee <laughs> to Stormy McKendrick to my tre- my dot com fifth century solutions to fourth century border walls i really hope they have that uh, that url i'm going to i'm going to have to go there i'm shutting down my patronage unless we build a wall around conrad michaels <laughs> oh that's awesome john builderback jeff gelback sliced cabbage is 9 tenths of cold slaw <laughs> monica so republicans not safe to vote for ever again true civilpoliticsradio.com fridays at 7 p.m eastern on valley free radio i'm sorry but but groping nunez's meat is an anagram of opening <laughs> arguments <laughs> oh register the registry matters podcast came for the yodels stayed for the intelligent legal analysis well i hope we're uh, living up to that burbank makerspace an intelligible real property question advocate for a foster child in your community casaforchildren.org datahec.com business automation making the menial automatic thomas smith is my favorite attorney andrew is a close second trump the plump grump fell on a frump stump and got a dumped lump blank box men a miasma of incandescent plasma kurt robinson kiwa valley exports for australian red meat and craft beer cosmo thank god i don't work for the government anymore blues 
Let me be totally clear. I like being totally clear. All right, fair enough. I think I've done totally clear three or four times in this episode. But Schrodinger's Andrew is right and wrong at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> but you have no idea where my position is. Michael Cohen is a no-talent ass clown. Sam Buck, Milo Meadsong, The Halfling Bard, NSIU 3L, Chris Rowden, The Getting Off Podcast, the top Patreon of the first list. Karma Fleet is recruiting. Join your labor union together. We bargain alone. We beg. Put Mitch into a ditch. He's a rich son of a bitch. <laughs> nice. Mike the Intactivist, Polly Chalk, David from Brooklyn, Rob Shrek, James, Drunk Bernie Sanders for president, David, <laughs> Dalen Lee, Samus Grix. I don't believe Sakashite Fukusumi is really Japanese. Brian Upshaw's last chance for profit prison and anonymous. Now you, Thomas. Uh, all right. Buttercup's legal services upped our pledge, so up yours. <laughs> 831-CAT-LAW-1. Make sure to call that number. Welcoming the newest OA listener, Baby Wendy. Ego Snorter is an anagram of Roger Stone. At women for Conrad Michaels. <laughs> Uh, so good Zabby I see arbitration agreements everywhere OA has pierced the veil Nolum sensum facet hoc nomen patreon I don't know what I just said but it could be bad on vacation witty tagline service may be briefly (laughs) suspended (laughs) clampquest.org relaxation for robot mafia enforcers (laughs) wordorigins.org your site for etymological rabbit trails Derek Visit Land. <laughs> oh, it's a, one of those crazy city names. Visit Landfair in Gog, Wales. <laughs> oh, is that the mountain uh, in Wales? That's yeah, probably yeah. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Enrage mobbing nuts is an anagram of opening arguments. Liz, rip you to shreds, Esquire. Soul, big easy blasphemy, a string of unpronounceable characters. Illegally parked time machine, pursued for civil forfeiture. <laughs> An anagram of Republicans is lubes and crap. <laughs> Brandon Smith, jurisprudence falsely so-called. An anagram of Roger Stone is soon regret. <laughs> Rhonda is wearing her amicus briefs. Malika Chandler, Jeremiah's fancy microwave emporium. Abacus Flinch, campquest.org, campquest.org, campquest.org. Soggy Pants, Sam Denau, Greg Sullivan, too busy with new puppy to be clever. The proverbial OA patron. <laughs> Adopt a homeless pet and oppose declawing and ear docking. Matthew Vernon. Danny Baker at Combat Nonsense. Aaron Grady. Hundreds of hamburgers. <laughs> Ian and Ali. Sakashite Fukusumi would like to reopen negotiations with reality. St. <laughs> Muller, patron saint of yodlers. Eli Bosnick of OA Question fame. Mitchell. Thomas would take Roy back to the rug store. I don't know what that means. Sorry, I've, that's, uh, that one's lost on me. Get me Roger Stone. No, seriously, get me Roger Stone, Muller. Used Carl Salesman, <laughs> Mormon J. Fox Esquire. And finally, drumroll, please, our number one top patron to the stars, never to be caught, but you should all try, Conrad Michaels. Woo, Conrad Michaels. All right. Well, it's TGBE. I uh, I think I missed the last one, but, you know, it was close and uh, time to get back on that that win streak. I agree. And uh, and I I like this question. I like your chances with this question. So uh, so here we go. Oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam. No kidding. 
we have a man who was despondent and angry over oh. losing his job was contemplating suicide. Uh, with his revolver in his pocket, he went to a bar and drank until he was very intoxicated. He overheard a customer on the next bar stool telling the bartender how it was necessary for companies to downsize in order to keep the economy strong. Uh, the man turned to the customer and said, why don't you shut the hell up? Um, I love this question. I know, me too. The customer responded, hey, this is a free country and I can <laughs> say what better. I want while wearing my MAGA hat. Um, all the while shaking his finger at the man. The man became enraged uh, and um, sma- snatched his revolver from his pocket and shot the customer, killing him. Okay. A state statute defines first-degree murder as knowingly mm. causing the death of another person after deliberation uh, upon the matter. Deliberation is defined as cool reflection for any length of time, no matter how brief. And second-degree murder is defined as knowingly causing the death of another person. Manslaughter is defined at common law. So the question is, what crime did the man commit? Tough one. Yep. Answers. A, manslaughter, because there was a reasonable explanation for his becoming enraged. (laughs) B, first-degree murder, because deliberation can take place in an instant. C, first-degree murder, because he contemplated taking a human life before becoming intoxicated. Or D, second-degree murder huh. because he knowingly caused the customer's death without deliberation. Well, um, yeah, contemplating suicide. Yeah, that's a funny one. C is a tricky one where it's it's trying to like <laughs> it's trying to. I and I don't think this is right, but answer C is trying to include him contemplating killing himself as like, well, that's part of the contemplation because it's taking a human life. I thought that was creative. If that turns out to be right, then I'm probably quitting the law. Um, but <laughs> uh, this is a fun question. Um, I, you know, my instinct would be second degree murder because, uh, I, you know, becoming enraged and shooting someone seems to me like a second degree murdery thing. And first degree murder, j- this is just going based on instincts and movies and doing the show. It's usually like you plan it for a little more. But. The way the facts are are given in this question, the state statute defines first-degree murder as knowingly causing the death of another person after deliberation upon the matter, and deliberation is defined as cool reflection for any length of time, no matter how brief. So do we have cool reflection? Cool reflection. So man, let's go back through the facts. Uh, he overheard the guy, the man turned to the customer and said, why don't you shut the hell up? The customer responded, this is a free country. I can say what I want. All the while shaking his finger at the man. <laughs> the man became enraged, snatched his revolver from his pocket and shot the customer, killing him. To me, that really doesn't sound like cool reflection for any length of time. So I I'm st- I believe I'm still on my second degree murder instinct, which is D. But let's go through the answers very quickly. A, manslaughter, because there's reasonable explanation. If someone wags your finger at wags their finger at you i think that should be reasonable explanation for becoming enraged but i unfortunately i don't think that's how the i don't think that's how the law works so i would hope it's not manslaughter uh b first degree murder because deliberation can take place in an instant that's a very tempting answer and so that would be my other uh second chance bar exam uh answer second chance uh to law practice whatever it was uh, because 
the way it defines it, it does seem like it's trying to get you to say, well, deliberation for any length of time could be an instant. But I'm pretty keyed into this cool reflection for any length of time. I don't think there was any cool reflection in this uh, in this murder. Uh, <laughs> C, first degree murder because he contemplated taking the life of, of taking a human life before becoming intoxicated. Ah, uh, it's, I don't think that's, uh, I think that's a funny answer. It can't be right. And also the state statute defines first degree murder as knowing, knowingly causing the death of another person. So that's pretty clear. And D, second degree murder because he knowingly caused the, cust- the customer's death without deliberation. I mean, that seems pretty clear that it's D. Uh, B is tempting. I think it's a little distractor there. Uh, it's the next best answer, but I'm pretty confident uh, about as confident as I've ever been in an answer that it's D. So that means I probably got it wrong. That's my answer. Final answer D. <laughs> well, if you would like to join and play along with Thomas, who is as confident as he's ever been in any answer, you know how to do that. Just share this episode out on social media. Include your guests, include the reasons they're for, uh, and the hashtag TTTBE, and we will pick a winner and shower that winner with never-ending fame and fortune. Fame and fortune not guaranteed. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And of course, keep an eye on the news to find out if we are in the worst possible timeline. Yeah. That's a thing. We'll see you. We'll see you soon. Listen to a lot of awful movies to cheer you up. Yeah. You betray the law. This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. Podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media LLC. All rights reserved. Opening Arguments is produced with the assistance of our editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, our production assistant, Ashley Smith, and our researcher, Deborah Smith. Special thanks to Teresa Gomez and the entire OA Wiki team. Follow them at, at OA Wiki. And a big thank you to our Facebook group moderators, Alicia Cook, Natalie Newell, Emily Waters, Eric Brewer, and Brian. Check out the Opening Arguments Facebook community. And finally, thanks to Thomas Smith for creating the show's theme song, which is used with permission.